Okay, morning. Um, our reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 3. Um, and while you're turning to it, um, I know we say it every week, but just a reminder that it's God wor- God's word to us. Um, through these scriptures, we're told of God's divine love for us. And because of this beautiful truth, we hold his word in the highest regard. So let us hear the Lord speak to us this morning from Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar the son of Imri built. The sons of Hasena built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Meremoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakal, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bena, repaired. And next to them, the Tekawites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada the son of Paseah, and Meshulam the son of Bethsaida, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon the Mernothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them Uziel the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaneah, repaired. Malkijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zanua repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Acherim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethsar, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahim, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kela, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavaye, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kela, 
Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakals, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section, from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress, and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pedea, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok the son of Immer repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan the sixth son of Zalaf repaired another section. After him, Meshulam the son of Berechiah repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we can gather here this morning to read your word. We thank you that your word is good, your word is inspired, and that your word is breathed out by you alone. Father, I pray that even though some passages may be complicated, that we may not understand them initially, I pray that you will open our eyes and open our hearts and that you will speak through Andrew and whatever it is that he has to say. Um, I pray that you'll give him strength, that you'll give him guidance as he comes to preach and that you will bless this word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, Hannah definitely had the hardest job this morning. Uh, well done. That was incredible. Not one mistake. Um, that sounded patronizing. It's not meant to be. I genuinely am impressed. Um, and, and, and Hannah kind of hit the nail on the head there when she was praying. You kind of read a passage like this, and you're thinking, what on earth? Like, why are we reading all of this, and, and why would we study it? But Hannah said when she prayed that, that, that this is God breathed scripture, all of it, every single word, and so uh, we would be unwise to skip over any of it. Uh, I want to read you, want to start by reading you an excerpt from an article uh, from, uh, in the Guardian, that was in the Guardian a few years ago about the first mission that landed men on the moon. And this is what it said, and I'm sorry I didn't, uh, I'm not giving you the writer's name because I didn't take it down. I should have. Apologies to, to him or her. It says this, falling back from the moon, at almost seven miles a second, the crew of, seven miles a second, by the way, can you imagine that? The crew of Apollo 11 took it in turns to broadcast their thoughts about what their mission meant. Buzz Aldrin, who is 
somehow connected to Lauren, by the way. You can ask her about it later. Buzz Aldrin spoke not just about being three men on a mission to the moon, but of their flight symbolizing the insatiable curiosity of mankind to explore the unknown. Mike Collins, who's the one everyone forgets, talked about the complexity of the Saturn V rocket and the blood, sweat, and tears it had taken to build it. And Neil Armstrong thanked the Americans who had put their hearts and all their abilities into building the equipment and machinery that had made the journey possible. There were a lot of them to thank. NASA estimated that it, that it had taken more than 400,000 engineers, scientists, and technicians to accomplish the moon landings, reflecting the vast number of systems and subsystems needed to send men there. 400,000 people and only three went to space, and only two walked in the moon. One goal, 400,000 people. Today in our study we, we, of Nehemiah, we come to chapter 3. And there's one theme from this God-breathed passage of Scripture that I want to see this morning. And it's simply this, that all of God's people have a part to play in the building of His church. All of God's people have a part to play in the building of His church. And this is important for us to think about, because a lot of us struggle to see how we are necessary or, or useful in the kingdom of God. And many of us think that we have little or no worth. We feel that we're not gifted in any way, or that we have nothing to offer. But what God is telling us this morning, through His Word, through this long list of names and jobs, is that if you are a Christian, you have a part to play in this rebuilding work, not of the temple, or not of the, the city walls of Jerusalem, but of God building His church, of, of God building His kingdom. That if you are a Christian, you have a part to play. And we're going to see this, we're going to see three things about, about this work that is going on here in Nehemiah 3. We're going to see the purpose of the work, the people of the work, and the promise of the work. So let's start with the purpose of the work. In this, we see that the purpose of the work is simply to bring glory to God. In chapters 1 and 2, uh, you might remember from uh, last week that we saw how God put it on Nehemiah's heart to, to leave his, his pretty comfortable life. I mean, there was a risk that he'd be poisoned if someone had tried to poison the king. But he, he had a really comfortable, kind of influential life uh, in Persia. And God said, I want you to return to, to Jerusalem and, and, and rebuild the city walls. Now, I want to be clear that this wasn't a small project, right? Uh, this was a massive construction job. This wasn't just putting up a garden wall or, or even, you know, putting an extension on the back of your house. This was a huge city-wide building operation, okay? Um, the wall was over seven kilometers long. It was over two meters wide, right? That's, you know, what's two meters? Six feet. And it had 11 gates and then several defensive towers along the way. It was one of the largest structures in the ancient world. But why? Why did it matter? Why, why was it important that, that these walls were re rebuilt at all? Well, take a look at verse 1. It's on the screen. Then Eliashib, the high priest, that's about the only name I'm going to read today. So uh, Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. You see the first thing they did when they finished the first part of their work? They consecrated it. Now, that, that just means that they, they dedicated it to God, okay? 
The word consecrated simply means set apart or made holy. And the first thing they did was dedicate their work to God. You see, they knew that this building project they were in was, was, more, was about more than just putting stones on top of other, each other to make a wall. They knew it wasn't just about having a nice place for the people to live. They knew it wasn't about just keeping enemies out. Now, these, these priests knew that the work that God had called them to was about one thing and one thing only, the glory of God. You see, the city of Jerusalem was important in the Old Testament because it symbolized something. It symbolized God dwelling among His people. And it, it pointed forward to a, a future that is still to come of, of God's people in God's place, living under God's reign. That's where we're headed. And this city had to be rebuilt because it was a signpost of that great future that is still to come. God had called these priests to His work, and they did it, did it gladly and dedicated it to God because they knew this one truth that all believers should know and practice. As believers, everything we do should be done for God's glory. Everything we do should be done for God's glory. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for, the, as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, do it for God's glory. For, you're doing it for God. You're not doing it for men. So whatever job you have, your boss isn't your boss. God is your boss. Don't, I mean, probably don't go in tomorrow and tell him that or her that. Like, you might get fired. But, but whatever it is you're called to do in this life, be it a teacher, a doctor, a designer, a stay-at-home parent, a retiree, an intern, whatever it may be, you are called to do that to the best of your ability for one reason and one reason only, to shine a light on the glory and goodness of God, to point to Him. You see, that the building of the city walls wasn't about making the Israelites famous. It was about making God famous. And so it is for us. I have a friend who, who used to play professional rugby. And a few years ago, uh, he was at a point in his career where he had some questions. He was questioning his performance. He was questioning his, um, that word that sports people always use, his mentality. He was, he was even, even wondering, should he continue playing at the club that he was at? And I remember just praying with him and, and then saying to him that... that it just came to me, he's like, hang on, but you're not at that club to play rugby. You're at that club to bring glory to Jesus. Every single one of those 400,000 people in the Apollo program did what they did because they had one clear goal, to put man on the moon. And every single Christian should do whatever it is we do because we have one clear goal, to bring glory to God. Church, this is what we're called to, to live lives that, 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 that point to the goodness of God, to the glory of Jesus, and whatever it is we do. And I wonder what it would look like for this week if, if, we, if we took on this attitude to dedicate all our efforts and everything we do to the glory of God. What if we actually did do everything for the Lord and, and not for the approval of people or, or our own gratification. Like, think about this. How much of what you do generally in your day-to-day -day is for your own gratification or because you want to please other people? But everything we do should be done for the glory of God. And this is especially true when it comes to the church, when it comes to how we work in the church, how we serve in the church. Listen, it doesn't matter how many people we have on a Sunday. 
Is that better? It doesn't matter how many people we have on a Sunday. It doesn't matter how good our kids' program is. It, it doesn't matter how uh, good the music is. It doesn't matter how, how warm our welcome is or even how compelling the preaching is. None of that matters if we aren't first and foremost about bringing glory to God. If we're not working towards the glory of Jesus, then there is no point doing of any of it. If we are not first and foremost about Jesus being worshipped, then, then we might as well just pack up right now and go home. And what's terrifying to me, and I, I, I just want to confess this as a, as a church planter, as an elder of a church, and, and somebody who cares way too much about what people think, What's terrifying to me is that there are plenty of churches who are good, who, who are dedicated to having great community, who are dedicated to have good preaching, who are dedicated to being welcoming and serving the poor and, and, and being active in the neighborhood and all these kinds of things, but, but still miss that it's for God's glory. The purpose of all we do should be with the chief aim of bringing glory to the name of God. That city built on that hill Two, two and a half thousand years ago that they were working on here in the time of Nehemiah wasn't about bringing glory to the name of Israel. It was about bringing glory to the name of God. They would see that's where God dwells. This is the purpose of our work, to glorify God. Secondly then, what we see about this rebuilding project is the people of the work in that we all have a part to play. This is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. It's strange how the COVID pandemic, right, it seems like it was only yesterday, doesn't it? But at the same time, it feels like years and years ago because it was so weird. Like, sometimes I'm thinking about it, I'm like, that was weird, wasn't it? Did we actually live like that, that you weren't allowed to leave your house and all? Like, that was mad. It was a strange and difficult time for everybody in the whole world. And, and we are very much still living in the hangover of it, aren't we? And I think one of the biggest tragedies I mean, obviously, apart from the, the, the tragic loss of life, but one of the biggest trage tragedies from that is, is how it, it turned us, uh, it trained us, I should say, in individualism. Like, and the truth is, it didn't take very much for us to become more individualistic because we already are sinful and turned in on ourselves, and we already live in a society that glorifies and idolizes individualism. Uh, but... but the lockdown somehow legitimized our own selfish desires and our, our, our desire to just kind of care about ourselves and, 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 and kind of keep each other out. And, and this is especially noticeable in the church. We, we all got out of the way of being together, didn't we? It, it now still feels like more of an effort to commit to being with your missional community on a weekly basis, doesn't it? And it's okay to admit that, right? And we should admit that. And it's much easier to talk yourself out of, of coming to the gathering on Sunday mornings. And it's certainly far easier to convince ourselves that we don't have an active part to play. But if Nehemiah shows us anything, it's that we all have a part to play in God's kingdom building work. Kingdom building is a team sport, right? It's like COVID has taught us that we're all marathon runners, but in fact, we're all footballers. <laughs> we can't do it on our own. And we see two things about this in this chapter. We see that there's no such thing as a passive church member. There's no such thing as a passive church member. This is something that we can't afford to, to miss. 
You see, uh, maybe when you were reading along or listening along to Hannah reading the passage, you, you noticed that there was a, a kind of rhythm to it. And it's done in a very specific way. Nehemiah put it down this way with, with this intention. So we're given a person's name, right? And then uh, the job they were doing and where they were doing it. And then followed by the phrase, I'm next to him. So over and over again, such and such worked on this part of the wall. And, and next to him, such and such rebuilt this gate. And next to him, and next to him. And then further on down the passage, it's like Nehemiah's like, this is a lot of work, so he just goes after him, <laughs> like after him, after him. Like there's a lot of people in there and a lot of jobs. But what we get is that this picture built up of, of everybody working side by side in the place where they've been put with one goal in mind, everybody involved. There's no such thing as a passive church member. Nehemiah doesn't even mention his own name here. Did you see that? There is one Nehemiah in here, but it's a different Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't even mention his own name. He's the one who shared the vision. He's the one who's encouraged and equipped them for the work. And, and no doubt, he's the one who is coordinating all of this. He's one of the greatest leaders in the entire Bible. But, but he's not even mentioned because it's not about one person. Everybody plays their part. And also, it's not about the leaders. It's not about the leaders. It's not about, imagine Nehemiah trying to go out and rebuild this wall all on his own. Don't worry, guys. By the way, this is my approach to leadership, my natural approach. So you just need to keep me in check. It's like, don't worry, lads. I'll sort of, I'll build the walls. I don't need any help. I'll be fine. And just me working for like 100 years, like trying to build walls. It's not about the leaders. Everybody caught the vision. Everybody got involved. You see, church is not about us as individual, individuals. Everybody is called to play their part. Church is only about one individual, and that's the risen Lord Jesus. And there are other texts um, from things like this at uh, similar period in history, uh, but they're not the same as, as Nehemiah chapter 3. <clears throat> you see, usually it would be a list of all the work that the king was doing. And it would be like, the king did such and such. The king rebuilt this wall. The king built this city. But Nehemiah doesn't mention the king. He doesn't mention his own name because he knows that God's building project is about everybody playing their part. And here's the thing. If God's building project is about everybody playing their part, then we actually have to play our part. <laughs> That's the thing. A D.L. Moody, who's a, a, an old dead guy, um, that's awful. He was a, a really well-respected teacher and uh, theologian in the 1800s in America. And he said this, like this is 150 years ago he said this, a great many people have got a false idea about the church. They believe the church is a place to rest in, to get a nicely cushioned pew and contribute to their charities, listen to the minister and do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy is all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church never enters their mind. Church, it's so easy to become complacent in our approach to the body of Jesus and the kingdom of God. Almost without thinking, we, we can slip into passive Christianity, can't we? Never really given much consideration uh, to the part that we have to play. And, and, and week after week, we preach that salvation is not of works, and that is true. And believe you me, I will bang that drum until the day I die. 
But the danger is that, that when we preach that salvation is not of works, that we forget that just because salvation is not of works doesn't mean that we don't have work to do when we receive salvation. We belong to a servant king, the one who came to serve us. And it's because we follow him that we serve too. We don't work to earn God's favor. We work because we have received God's favor. You see how that works? We don't work to earn God's favor. We work because we have God's favor. And I wonder, it's worth this morning just reconsider our attitude to this. Even as we were praying before our gathering this morning, I was just struck by, I love Sundays and seeing how everyone serves in all their different ways. And it's a beautiful picture of how the church should be. But I wonder even in that, if we need to reconsider our attitudes to this. How have we become complacent? Where have we become complacent? Are we in danger of becoming passive Christians? Church, we have been raised from death to life in Jesus, and God the Father has given us the great privilege of being used by him as he builds his kingdom in South Belfast. In chapter 2, when, when Nehemiah shared the state of the city walls with all the, the Jews around, um, and then he said, guys, we got to, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Guys, we've got to do something about this. We've got, to, we've got to rebuild this thing, right? This does not reflect well on the glory of God. And he shared the vision. And here's how the people responded. This is, uh, I forget the verse. Um, chapter 2, verse 18. I told them of, I told them of the hand um, of my God that had been on me, upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, they didn't say, right, well, let's get Mark and, and, uh, and his uh, civil engineering firm. Let's get, get them in. Okay, this is a big project, guys. Let's sort of the budget. No. These were people who belonged to the community of God and wanted to see God glorified, and so they just got on with the work. And maybe we need the, the same attitude. It's time for us to say, let's rise up and build. Let's rise up and build. It's time for us to strengthen our hands for the good work because there's no such thing as passive church members. And it's easy for us to become passive. But I also want to see that in this work that diversity is God's design for the church. Diversity is God's design for the church. Apollo missions, 400,000 people involved in putting man on the moon. Men, women, white people, black people, scientists, engineers, computer programmers, cleaners, doctors, nurses, teachers, you name it. Cooks, drivers. And there's a similar dynamic going on in Nehemiah chapter 3. In this passage, we're given, uh, and uh, Hannah knows this, there were 38 named leaders working in 42 different teams, covering seven named neighborhoods of the city, and then countless people who aren't named. There were priests, union members, women, men of Jericho, uh, temple servants, goldsmiths, merchants, and perfumers. You see, God's plan has always been for diversity. He is building his kingdom, and it will be a kingdom that is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation that has ever existed. And so, if that's the end goal, then why would it surprise us that he uses diversity to accomplish it? 
The end goal is diversity, and so, of course, the process will mean diversity. A diversity of people? Yeah. Ages, genders, races, political backgrounds, and also a diversity of roles. And, and, and the, the diversity of people that we see in Nehemiah 3 simply points as a little snapshot to, to the diversity that one day will be gathered around the throne of Jesus. You see, we need diversity in our lives because that's how God has created us. If you're in your 20s and 30s, then you need friends in their 50s and 60s. That now includes Liam, by the way. If you, sorry, Liam. I just saw you in the back there and I thought, you know. If you are older, Liam, you need friends who are younger. If you are married, you need single people in your life to remind you that marriage isn't the point of life. If you are single, you need married brothers and sisters to point you to Jesus through the picture of Christ's love that marriage gives us. If you have money, you need brothers and sisters who are less well-off to teach you the beauty of trusting God to provide your needs. If you are a man, you need the input of women. And yes, if you're a woman, you need the input of men. This is how God has created us. And this model goes all the way back to creation. You see, in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created man, and then he put him in the garden, and he gave him this job. He said, this is your garden. I put you here. Now tend it and keep it. But it wasn't very long, two verses later, actually, when God said, well, God noticed something wasn't quite right. And he said, the, the only time he says something about his creation that's not good, he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And, and this isn't just about marriage. Of course, the marriage thing is in there too. But this is about a bigger, wider picture of God's design for human beings. It is not good to be alone. We need each other. We are created in the image of God to need others. Listen, it's okay to need help. In fact, you were created to need help. Why is it that all of a sudden that we think that being in need of help is a bad thing? Notice how the creation of the man who needed help was before the fall? That was not sinful. That's the image of God. The people of Jerusalem couldn't do this building project on their own, so they got people from all the world, or all the world, all around to join them too. Uh, uh, Jews from all over the place. And sometimes we wonder why we're struggling in our walk with God when actually it's, it's simply because we're trying to do it alone. But we all need help. We need godly counselors to impart wisdom and scripture into our lives. We need brothers and sisters to encourage us and build us up. We need older brothers and sisters investing in our lives. And yes, this means that we need to be older brothers and sisters investing in other people's lives. You see, the devil takes our need for help and twists it and turns it into a negative thing and tells us that we are useless if we can't do it alone. But this is a lie. To need help, to need each other, is to live how God created you to be. We were created to need each other. And this is why we have missional communities on our church, because we need each other as we live each day to bring glory to God in whatever areas or whatever stage of life or whatever job He has placed you in. Do you see this beautiful diversity that we get to be part of? What God is, is building is truly beautiful, and we get to be part of it. This is why in our church we don't really do many demographic-specific things, ministries, right? 
outside of men's stuff and women's stuff occasionally and, and, and kids' work. That's about it. And we have good reasons for doing those things. But, but this picture of a diverse body is why our missional communities are so important and why they aren't based on common interest. They don't have, you know, like a, a doctor's missional community or a teacher's missional community or whatever. We have the church together. A friend of mine put it so simply, and he said, our unifier is Jesus, not sameness. Our unifier is Jesus, not sameness. But it's not just a diversity of people in the kingdom, it's a diversity of roles. And I love all the, the, the kinds of people mentioned in this chapter, everybody playing their part, and it's this beautiful foreshadowing, a look into head to the church of Jesus, where we are right now. And Romans 12, verses 4 to 8, is, is kind of like the New Testament version of Nehemiah chapter 3, without the names. It says this, For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, okay? So a hand is not a foot. A head is not a bum, right? Okay? All, they all have different things. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So we're all gifted in different ways. Let us use them, he says. And then he goes on to say, well, if you're a prophet, prophesy in proportion to your faith, in service, in your servant, or serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now listen, what I want to say is that you might think that you have no part to play or a very little part to play in the body of Jesus, but it is God's church, not ours, and he is putting it together exactly how he wants it to be. And so who are we to say that he is wrong? God has given you this body of people, but he has also given you to this body of people. Do you understand? And one of the greatest tragedies in the church is when people don't feel like they have anything to offer. We tend to, to shy away from and be afraid of doing something that we're bad at. We worry that we might not be good at it, so we just don't try. But that's the world talking. You see, the world is based on performance, but the church is different. The church is based on grace, and the world says, well, you have to be good to be taken seriously, but God says, in my community, everybody's accepted, and we all just get stuck in. Listen, we need to serve. We need each other to serve in the ways God has given us to the body. It's a lie. I believe this. It's a lie from the depths of hell that you have no part to play in the body of Jesus, because if you're a Christian, then you have been made part of the body of Jesus. God says you were created in Jesus for good works, which he prepared for you. So don't believe the lies of Satan. Just step up and serve. Encourage your sister this week. Cook the meal for the household that needs it. Offer to pray for your brother. Pray for each other when your missional community gets together this week. Share the gospel with your friend at work. Whatever it may look like. You are in this particular part of the body of Jesus because that's where God in his infinite wisdom and unending love has decided to put you. Verse 8 is one of my favorite verses in this chapter. 
uh, he says, next to them, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, uh, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now, I have done my fair share of uh, manual labor over the years, and it would be hard to think of two kinds of people less suited to building stone walls than perfumers and goldsmiths. <laughs> it made me, this made me think of the, have you ever seen the movie Zoolander, right? And he's like the Ben Stiller's the model, and then he goes down the coal mine with his dad and his brothers to work down the coal mine, and he's like giving all that. This is what made me think of that. These guys, you know, maybe first day they turn up, you know, in their, their best robes or whatever, and, you know, their hair done, and, and the, the, you know, covered in the gold rings and smelling beautiful. But here they are, goldsmiths and perfumers just getting stuck in, doing what needs done. You see, often in the church, the needs to be met aren't what we're naturally gifted in or good at. And this is especially true for a young church plant like ours. I remember in the early days of Village, and I could talk about them today because they're not here, but in the early days of Village, Tim and Leanne somehow got the job uh, uh, of making the tea and coffee every week. And they're not baristas, and they didn't really like it, but they did it. Uh, they saw the need, and they served faithfully and joyfully, week after week, just making tea and coffee for everyone. And the coffee wasn't even that great, I'll be honest with them. But they did it joyfully and faithfully. This is what it means to serve in the body of Jesus. You won't always get to do what you want to do. Now contrast that. Contrast the goldsmiths and the perfumers with verse 5. It says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Man. You see, the goldsmiths and the perfumers could have said no. They could have said, Well, we're not gifted in manual labor. Um, We're not really natural stonemasons but they didn't. They just happily served in the way that was needed because they saw the bigger vision of God being glorified. They stooped low to serve. How different it is for the nobles of the Tekoites. They would not stoop low to serve their Lord. Now, which one do you want to be? How do you want your name to be recorded? Imagine if in 1969, a a cleaner in NASA decided that they wouldn't clean anymore because they felt more called to the role of astronaut. (laughs) Like, how does this work? Or an engineer who's designing a seatbelt buckle, and he's like, well, I'm probably just going to stop this because actually I'm going to wait around until a role more, you know, suitable to me comes up. And I wonder, do we not serve because we're waiting for a role to come up that perfectly suits us? Do we not serve because we're unwilling to stoop low? Often in the church of Jesus, the work that is required is not the work that is desired. The work that is required is not the work that is desired. Listen, I know what it's like. The world has trained us to think that we will only be fulfilled if we're following our dreams and and living our heart's desire and doing that one niche thing that is just us and sets us free. But this is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way of his body. In the community of Jesus, you know what we do? We're a family. And so we get stuck in, and where we see the need, we meet it gladly. Because it's not about us, it's about God getting the glory, remember? And if we hold that one vision in the front of our minds, we will serve where there is need. And so we serve tea and coffee. We visit our brothers and sisters who are sick. We cook meals for the couple that have just had a baby. We open our home at any time of day or night for, for the person who's lonely. We have a brilliant team in our church who, who, who faithfully clean this building. 
None of them are professional cleaners. At least, and that's not a judgment on their work, by the way. You guys aren't professional cleaners, obviously. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that none of them are professional cleaners. And I don't think anyone in this church would maybe go, I feel called to a life of cleaning. But, but, but they serve and they do it because it needs done. And guess what? Jesus gets the glory. They don't get the glory. Every, I don't even know who it is every week who's coming in here to clean. Right now, we have a real need with our kids' ministry. We need more people to serve with our kids. And you might think, well, that isn't me. I'm not really gifted in kids' work. Well, well listen, here's what I want to say. Goldsmiths and perfumers aren't very gifted in stonemasonry. So speak to Lauren and get signed up to serve in our kids. If our one goal, our unified goal, is that, that Jesus is glorified, we will serve in any place there is need. Donna Petter, who wrote a commentary on Nehemiah, she said it this way. She said, qualification for the participation does not relate to one's particular skill sets, but is based on the desire to rebuild Zion. Isn't that cool? In other words, it's not about how you feel gifted. It's, not, it's about having a desire to see God glorified in South Belfast and beyond. And in this way, we are fulfilling God's kingdom mission diversity, uh, kingdom building mission of a diversity of people and a diversity of roles so that he gets the glory. So the purpose of the work is that God gets the glory. The people of the work is that everyone has a part to play. And I want to finish with this, the promise of the work. This is looking forward to God dwelling with us for eternity. See, the building project in Nehemiah was not an end in and of itself. Rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem was pointing forward to an even bigger, more expansive, more inclusive building project. God building his kingdom, a kingdom that will, will not just be about one small city or one ethnic group of people, but a kingdom that will cover the whole world and be made up of people from every ethnic and social group that has ever existed. We saw this last week, the Habakkuk 2.14. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is the end goal. You see, we the church are becoming that. <laughs> this, is in, this is incredible. We need to grasp this. We are on our way to becoming the new Jerusalem. It's like the foundations are laid, so we can call it the new Jerusalem, but it's not fully built yet. That's the renewing, that's the joining God and the renewal of all things part that we are. The church is becoming the new Jerusalem. And the Bible speaks of this over and over again in this kind of you, the church, are, are a, a kind of building. Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15 describes the church as the household of God, a pillar. See that building language? A buttress. I'm not even sure what it is. Ask one of the many engineers we have in the room. I think it's a thing that holds up a wall. I may be wrong. A buttress of truth. 1 Peter 2 says that we are like living stones being built up as, his, as a spiritual house. That means that we're not just the builders, we are the building materials. Isn't that cool? Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, we're told that we belong to a heavenly Zion. Zion's just another word for, for Jerusalem. And in that passage, it even said that our names are registered in a list, just like the census here in Nehemiah 3. We have our part, the Bible says, in the new Nehemiah 3. And this is what it's all about. You see, this isn't a sermon just about trying to get you to serve more. This is about the glorious truth that we are part of God's eternal building project. 
This is what it's all about. The promise of this building project. We are part of the eternal kingdom that God is working in the world. And in this building project, we are both the builders and the building materials. We have been made new through the death and resurrection of Jesus and and now through the Holy Spirit are being built up as a spiritual house. God is building a house for himself out of us and he's using us to do it. The goal has always been for us to be the dwelling place of God. In the new creation, there won't be a temple building because we will be the temple and God will just live among us. In the new creation, the city will be us. We will be the city, and God will dwell among us. This week, uh, me and Haley are getting a few days away. Uh, we're going to York. Um, and, uh, I mean, we're pretty nerdy sometimes uh, when we go away, and we just like going to see all the old stuff. Um, and we love going to cathedrals, and, and so I'm looking forward to it. I heard that there's even a pub in York that has... Uh, uh, the ruins of a, a Roman bathhouse in its basement. I definitely want to see that. Two birds, one stone in that place. But sometimes I wonder about these old cathedrals that we visit and, and you see all the incredible craftsmanship and, and the work that was put into them over years, sometimes taking a hundred years to build a cathedral. And I wonder, did, did the workers imagine that hundreds of years later their, their work would still be standing for people to come and marvel at and see? I wonder this about Nehemiah and, and the people who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. You see, the walls that Nehemiah led the building of here didn't last forever. Just 500 years after this, in AD 70, the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. There's only one part of the Western Wall left that you can go and see. They call it the Wailing Wall. The Romans built a bathhouse, apparently, in York that's now buried under a pub. But listen, this spiritual house of the living God that we are part of will never be broken down. If you are in Jesus, you are part of an eternal building project that will never be crumbled down, that will never be buried under a pub. The work that we are called to by God and are joining God in and are also the building materials of will last for eternity. This is why, this is why it's the only work worth doing. You see? This is why we do everything for the glory of God, because only the work that we do for Jesus will last for eternity. Every other thing that we put our hand to and put our energy and time and efforts into will one day not exist. Only God's kingdom, his spiritual house, will last forever. And if you are in Jesus, if you are trusting Jesus, then he has a place for you in his kingdom. You have been created as a new creation in Christ Jesus for the good works that he has prepared for you. You have a part to play in God's kingdom-building work. God will be glorified. He will have a diverse people as his kingdom, and he will dwell among them. And if you are trusting in Jesus, then this is the future that is yours. And I just want to add, if you don't know Jesus, then maybe this is all a bit confusing to you. And that's okay, of course. I mean, why wouldn't it be confusing that we just read out a two and a half thousand year old document of a list of names and occupations? That's a weird thing to do. I get it. But can I invite you, if you don't know Jesus, to just consider him? Just consider what's going on here. Considering the things that you put your effort and time and energies into, considering how long that will last. 
invite you to consider Jesus. I invite all of us to consider Jesus, to realize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness and, and then receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And then you too will be like us with this eternal hope, this, this forever security, this glorious, unshakable future. Listen, church, we all have a part in God's kingdom and don't let the devil tell you that you have nothing to offer because the almighty loving God says that you do have something to offer because he has put you here. He's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Let me pray. Come Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for your word. Uh, I, I thank you that even through a, a list of names and, and occupations that you are speaking to your church. Father, I want to thank you for every single uh, person who is part of your, this expression of your body part of this church in South Belfast. Lord, I, I thank you for them. I thank you for the ways that you've gifted them. Lord, um, help us to not get too hung up on how we're gifted and what we're called to do. Help us grow in us a desire to serve, a desire to see Zion built, a desire to see you glorified. Lord, that's what I pray through your Holy Spirit at work in us this morning, moving powerfully, that, that we would be changed in that way. all of us, Lord. Father, we pray that you would continue to build your church. Thank you for the evidence of that we've already seen this morning, that you are building your church. Lord, we pray for more people to be raised from death to life in Jesus. I pray for anyone who's listening to this this morning. Father, I pray that you would move in their hearts to, in repentance, to know you, to trust you, to love you. Father, we pray above all that you would be glorified. That's our one unified goal. And Lord, as we come to your table now again to celebrate and proclaim your death, Father, I pray that you would meet us there in a new and fresh way and remind us of the place that we have and remind us of the reason we have that place because of your great sacrifice. We pray these things for the glory of Jesus. Amen. And we are going to come to the Lord's table again this morning uh, to remember and proclaim his death. Um, this simple meal of, of bread and wine are given to us uh, as a tangible reminder and proclamation of his sacrifice for us. We are living stones being built up into the household, the, 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 the spiritual house, but the Lord Jesus was the foundation stone, a foundation laid down at the cost of his own body broken and his own blood, blood spilled. He died to pray, pay the price of the forgiveness of our sins against the holy God, and we are now part of this new house of God because of his great sacrifice. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to invite you to the table. This table is for you who have been forgiven of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus gave us this sacred tradition to us, his church. And please don't think that you can only come forward and receive this if you are perfect. You cannot come perfect. Jesus alone is your perfection but you are invited to come broken, yes, but hopeful, believing and repenting. And Jesus invites you. And if you aren't a Christian, the bread and the wine is not something you should receive. Only those who have received Jesus should receive this sign of belonging to him. And instead, I would encourage you to use this time to consider the offer of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus holds out to you if you are willing to receive him. Place your hope in him. So you might not come forward with communion today, but you can come to Jesus today and find eternal life, which is what this symbolizes.